Well, if you have your Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews, please. We're going to read the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. For those of you who are visiting, again, we're glad that you're here and we welcome you uh, in the name of Christ. And we invite you uh, to turn with us into the book of Hebrews as we've been studying Hebrews for a few months now. And we're working our way through the entirety of this book. And today we want to look at the subject of entering into the rest of Christ. Entering into the rest of Christ, and by that we mean the uh, shalom that comes with faith in Jesus, our Lord and Savior, that glory that awaits us. Uh, who love the Lord Jesus Christ sincerely, the new heavens and the new earth. Let's pray together. I'm going to begin reading today at verse 13, and then I'm going to spill over into chapter 4. Let's pray first. Our gracious God and our Father, help us, O Lord, by your Spirit to know and love you and to read the Bible with faith and fear and strengthen our souls by what we read and hear today, please let us grow in grace and knowledge and love for Jesus Christ. Let us feed on Christ by faith in the word and then at the table. We pray that this church would grow and multiply in number as well, and that the kingdom of Jesus Christ would spread in LaGrange and Troop County and the surrounding region, leading to a great revival and reformation of our country. We pray, Lord, for this country and for all the nations of the earth to come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We pray that your spirit would be poured out in a reviving and awakening manner that actually millions of people would be added savingly to the roles of the church and that they also would be brought safely into heaven when they die. We ask, Lord, that our country and our culture would be transformed by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and that we would return to the old paths of Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and that we would know him, and more importantly, that we would be known by him. We pray that the Holy Spirit would bring to faith anyone that is here today that has yet to come to faith in Jesus, and that they would know him truly and love him, and that they would be born again. And we pray this for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen. So let us read together Hebrews chapter 3 today. I'm going to begin reading at verse uh, 14. I think I said 13 here a second ago. 14, chapter 3, verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt, led by Moses, and with whom he was angry, For forty years, was it not with those who sinned, 
whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day called, quote, today, saying, through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Amen. Now, last week, we were considering that we should not resist the Holy Spirit, and we need to be careful how we listen to the Word of God, which was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and that when we read the Word, as we're doing here uh, this morning, uh, whether we read it publicly in the church, whether we read it privately at home, uh, that we acquiesce to it as the very Word of God in the words of God and we spoke of plenary inspiration. And then we saw, secondly, that we should watch our heart. Our hearts are deceitful, and we need to be careful. We need to uh, pursue that ongoing sanctification, without which no man will see the Lord. And then thirdly, we saw that we are to encourage one another to perseverance. Encourage one another. So don't resist the Holy Spirit. Watch your heart and encourage one another. Now, what I want to speak on today is coming from verses 14 to the end of chapter 3, and then a little bit in chapter 4, verse uh, 1 and 2 there, in two points. Number one is this, that perseverance is a sign of genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Perseverance is a sign, or I could say an indication, of genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's going to be point number one from verse 14 down to verse 19. And then in the beginning of chapter 4, we are going to consider the exhortation to fear the Lord 
by faith, to fear the Lord by faith. Now, let's consider those two points. First of all, point number one, look at verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Now, what does this mean? We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast that assurance and keep it till the end. Well, the author of Hebrews is saying, if you who profess faith in Jesus Christ, if we continue in that faith of the Lord, if we abide in that faith, if we persevere in that faith, then we show ourselves to be people who genuinely belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches uh, in John, uh, in his epistle, that there are some who leave us. But he tells us they have left us or they have left the faith because they were not genuinely of us. And that the Bible here is saying that we ought to see to it that we be diligent in persevering in our faith because as we persevere in our trust in the Lord and abide in the Lord and let his word abide in us and we abide in him by faith, we show ourselves genuinely to have been born from above, that it's not just some mere flash in the pan, some work of the flesh, some emotional high uh, that over time withers away. We are not to be as the seed that springs up quickly, and then when things get tough, it withers away. Uh, We are not to be as those who spring up and then over time just get kind of choked out by all the cares and concerns of the world. And we lose our religion, and we lose our commitment to Christ, and we instead go back to Egypt, if, it, if you will. We go back to the world, and the ways of the world, and the vain philosophies of the world, and the priorities of the world. And no longer do we seek first the kingdom. And we've all seen this in friends and and tragically, maybe even in family, where some have seemingly made a good profession at first, and then over time, that profession, that commitment to Jesus Christ begins to wither, it begins to wane, it begins to be compromised, and then sometimes even goes completely away altogether, and there is no longer any profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a common human malady and problem that you and I have to guard ourselves against. You and I must be careful that we who have begun a good work see to it that it continues, that we abide in it. Now, yes, it is a work of God. Okay, I'm not trying to steal anything from the Grace of God in our sanctification and glorification. It is from the beginning to the end. It is, it, is the, it is the Lord who preserves us. But the Lord who preserves us uses means by which we are preserved and we are to abide 
in those means. We are to abide in the means that God gives us so that we would persevere. And this, of course, is a great mystery. We're talking about the divine sovereignty of God who preserves his people, but yet from the human perspective, we are pastorally warned that we should persevere in the things of God. Um, Yes, on the one hand, from the divine perspective, it is of God. He who began a good work in you will complete it. But here, the author of Hebrews is not concerned primarily to look at the doctrine of perseverance from a divine perspective, top down, but he's coming from under. He's coming alongside us from the human responsibility perspective. And he's saying, you, dear Christian, if you are to persevere, you must continue and abide in the things which have been preached to you. You have to abide in the word. You have to use the means of grace. You have to allow God to do that work in your life. You have to be careful how you listen and that you listen with faith and with reverence and with fear. And so in the end of chapter 3, you'll notice here in verses 15 to 19 that the author gives us the historical examples of the children of Israel. Because remember, you and I are cut from the same cloth as the children of Israel. And you know what happened. The the children of Israel were saved by grace through faith. And they were brought out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt, out from under the tyranny of Pharaoh. They were brought through the, the work of Christ, through the Red Sea, walking as on dry ground. And the Lord went with them, and the Lord went before them. And the Lord provided the way that they should walk therein. And so it was all by God's grace that they were saved. And it was all by God's grace they were delivered out of Egypt. But the children of Israel began to turn away from the Lord while they were in the wilderness. They all heard, look at verse 15, quoting again from Psalm 95, while it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Now, who's the they? The they is the children of Israel. And historically, what is he speaking about? He's speaking about the children of Israel while they were in the Sinai desert, while they were in the wilderness. Now, they heard his voice. When did they hear the voice of God? They heard the voice of God and the thunder and the great cloud at Sinai, things that were too terrible for them. In fact, they even at one point come to Moses and say, Moses, this is too much for us to hear the voice of the Lord uh, for ourselves. You go, Moses, and speak to the Lord. And tell us what he speaks to you, and we will do that which he says. Um, and so they, they saw the miracles. They saw the Red Sea. They saw the manna coming down. They saw God provide the water from the rock. They saw how after years of wandering in the wilderness, the Bible says that their shoes did not wear out. I know many of you parents wish your children's shoes would not wear out like that. But that was a special miracle that God had wrought on his church, that they should see his signs and they should believe in his providential care. But what does the scripture say was the response? Well, look with me at at some of 
these responses. Look at Psalm 78. We have a, a psalm that sings about what happened in the wilderness. Look at Psalm 78 in your Bible. Look at verse 17. Psalm 78 and verse 17. So this psalm is a psalm of instruction. It's a didactic psalm. It means it's a teaching psalm. And we are supposed to learn from redemptive history from the children of Israel. And while God established many blessings and miracles for the people of God, look at verse 17 of this psalm. It says, Yet they, that is the children of Israel, they still continued to sin against him, to rebel against the Most High in the desert. And in their heart they put God to the test by asking food according to their desire. Then they spoke against God. Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? They, they, they began to get sick of the manna. And rather than seeing it as grace and blessing and sustenance, they turn and they say, can't God do better than this? Can't God give us meat in the wilderness. Oh, I remember the day we had the meat in Egypt, the onions and the leeks also. And so they, they complain in verse 20, behold, the Lord, he struck the rock so that waters gushed out and streams were overflowing. Can he give bread also? Will he provide meat for his people? Therefore, the Lord heard and was full of wrath and fire was kindled against Jacob and anger also mounted against Israel because of their grumbling in the wilderness. And you could go further down. Look at verse 30. Before they had satisfied their desire, while the food was in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed some of the stoutest ones. God brought a judgment with that provision of meat in the wilderness. And when he killed them, they sought him and returned and searched diligently for God. Verse 34. And they remembered that God was their rock and the Most High God, their Redeemer. So he chastens them and they, they come back to him, but it didn't last, did it? In verse 40, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and they grieved him in the desert. Again and again they tempted God and they pained the Holy One of Israel. If you jump down to verse 57 or 56 even, they tempted and rebelled against the Most High God. They didn't keep His testimonies. In verse 58, they provoked Him with their high places. They aroused His jealousy with graven images. And it goes on. And the same thing is said in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 7, the famous sermon by Stephen, when he's preaching, he uh, cites the same historical moment in Acts chapter 7 and verse 34, and as Stephen says this, he quotes here from the Old Testament, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groans. I have come down to rescue them. Come now and I will send you to Egypt. And so God goes and he, he delivers them through the Red Sea. But what happens? Verse 39, our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, Stephen says, but repudiated him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. And at that time they made a calf 
and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices for 40 years in the wilderness. Was it, O house of Israel? That is, were you worshiping me in those sacrifices? And he's saying, oh no, look at verse 43. You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god of Ramtha, foreign gods, the images which you made to worship. I will also remove you beyond Babylon. So uh, the people of God were unfaithful. They brought on uh, other gods while they were claiming to serve the living God and while they were making sacrifices. And then one more other reference, and then I'll, I'll move on to some application. Numbers chapter 14. Uh, I'll just jump down to Verse 30, surely you shall not come into the land. This is the Lord speaking to the people of God. Say to them, I'll say to them, verse 28, say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Now what's going on, boys and girls? God is saying you're not coming into the promised land. Your corpses, that is dead bodies, will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to settle you, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said would become as a prey, I will bring them in, and they will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. And so he brings about a judgment on the people of God, and they are forbidden to come in to the promised land. So the author of Hebrews is saying here, he's saying, we have to learn an important lesson here as a church. They had the gospel preached to them. Yes, that gospel was typological in nature, it was in shadows and forms. It was animal sacrifices. But it was the same message of salvation by, by grace through faith in the sacrifice that God one day would provide in His Son. They had the same covenant of grace as you and I have in the church today. The lesson is that as God disciplined them for their unbelief because they hardened their hearts and God did not let them into the promised land, we are to take warning. Grace does not mean a relaxation of the standards. Grace does not mean don't worry about faith. It's okay now. God winks at everything now. That, my friends, is not the message. The author of Hebrews is saying, in fact, you've been given more grace than they were given. And if they didn't make it, if they fell in the wilderness, how much more should you be warned about failing to persevere in your faith? You have a greater obligation to stand with the Lord, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because you've been given even more than the children of Israel had. You have been given the, the full revelation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. They saw the Son of God in types of circumcision and 
sacrifice of bulls and calves, the sprinkling of blood on an altar. You have been given by the Spirit of God through His Word, the the fullness of God in Christ. The Son of God has been set before your eyes in Christ. This Jesus Christ, for there is no other name under heaven by which you might be saved, has been revealed to you and your children after you. Therefore, it is more incumbent upon us to see that we persevere and that we use the means that God has given us that we would make it into the land of promise, that we would make it into glory, that we would make it into heaven, that we not provoke the Lord with idolatry, that we not turn away uh, from the Lord through sexual immorality, as as many of them did when uh, the daughters of Moab came into the camp. You know, remember the the, the incident at Peor when when uh, the Moabites could not curse them. Sufficiently, they they sought to compromise them. And so we're being warned here that we not do the same, but that we persevere. Now, I know that some of you may be thinking, well, if if I'm a Christian, of course I will persevere. And theologically, I, I would agree with you. If you truly are born again of the Spirit of God, you cannot lose true salvation. But what's being warned about? The author of Hebrews would say to you and me is make sure that it really is true salvation that you have. Make sure that your assurance is a genuine assurance in Jesus Christ, not a a false assurance. Many in the South, in the Bible Belt, have no reason to have assurance. They they think they are Christians, but they, they, they... do not really possess Christ. They don't really go to church. They do not follow his ways. They do not love the Lord. They compromise with things in this culture that they should not be compromising with. And so here, yes, I agree with you. If you are really a Christian, you will persevere. God will see to it that you persevere. But you must make sure that you really are a real Christian. And and one of the ways that you grow in your assurance that you really are a true Christian is that you continue in your faith and that you're growing in your faith and you're persevering in your faith. And it's not easy. The Christian life is not easy, boys and girls. It's full of difficulties. It's full of trials. It's full of temptations. It's full of setbacks. Um, It's full of disappointments. And yet, uh, by God's grace, we, we keep going. We keep believing. We show ourselves we really are children of God. We don't give up. We don't leave the Lord. We don't forsake the assembling of the saints. Notice what the author here says in verse 17. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Now, this doesn't mean that you must have lived a perfect Christian life to enter into the full rest and glory of Christ. 
It means purposefully you're seeking to be obedient. They're, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. But it is, a, it is a purposeful seeking of obedience. And I'm not drifting here into works. Uh, by, we're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. But it is not a faith that is alone. It is a faith that will be accompanied by genuine works, by genuine obedience. Jesus is not just Savior, but He is Lord. And He says, So we see that they were not able to enter because of what? Unbelief. It is their disobedience that shows that they really do not have faith. Now, let me move on to the exhortation. For all of that then leads us into chapter 4 here. And this is my second point. I want to talk about this, and then I have applications and questions for us as we close today. And that is that we are to what? Fear the Lord. Look at verse 1 here, chapter 4. Therefore, in light of all that has been said here previously, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Therefore, let us fear. Now, what is this fear? This fear is, according to John Owen, twofold. It is a reverence and it is evangelical faith as evidenced by obedience. It is reverence for God and it is evangelical faith, saving faith as evidenced by obedience. Listen to what John Owen says about what this fear means. We are exhorted here to fear What kind of fear? There's good fear and there's bad fear, boys and girls. Bad fear would be the fear of a slave who's seeking, who's fearing that he's going to be punished. Here, this is a fear of reverence and faith. Two things, says John Owen, two things included in this fear the Lord. First, says Owen, it is an awful apprehension of the holiness and greatness of God. An awful apprehension of the holiness and the greatness of God with his severity against sin, balancing the soul against temptation. That's the first one. I'll read it again. An awful apprehension of the holiness and greatness of God with his severity against sin, balancing the soul against temptation. Secondly, Owen says, it is a careful diligence in the use of means to avoid the evil threatened unto unbelief and disobedience. Secondly, it is a careful diligence in the use of means to avoid the evil threatened unto unbelief and disobedience here. And that comes from volume four of his commentary on Hebrews, page 205. Two things. Number one, you need to gain a proper understanding of the holiness of God. We see this in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah, he saw a vision of the Lord on his throne, and the angels, the seraphim, crying out, holy, 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 thrice holy is God. He is holy above. He is holy separate. From sinners. He is wholly separate from his creatures. He is far above all his creatures. We are but dust. He is the infinite, 
eternal, unchangeable God, infinite and eternal in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. He is a consuming fire, we are told in Hebrews chapter 11. God is uh, so holy that even holy creatures cover their eyes and they cover their feet in his presence. They cover themselves, even though they are without sin themselves. The holiness of God is qualitatively above even the holiness of his creatures. Not just quantitatively greater, but qualitatively. He is above his creatures. He is transcendent, far above, lifted up. He is high, says Isaiah. And when he sees this vision of God, immediately as he sees and he is overwhelmed with the holiness of this infinite, eternal God, he at the same time becomes aware of his great depravity. And he cries, woe unto me. That's, that word woe is, is, is a cry of judgment. It's a cry recognizing that he, boys and girls to put it mildly, is in trouble. He is condemned in the presence of God. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He recognizes that he is rightly condemned in the presence of this holy God, and that he deserves hell. He deserves to go to hell. And, and if, if, if that were all that we were told, Isaiah himself would probably say, Lord, send me to hell. But... But what happens? God in his grace comes down to Isaiah and touches him with a burning coal on his lips. And he purifies the lips of Isaiah. Um, and, and, and then he sends Isaiah to preach the holiness of God. Owen not only tells us you need to know about the holiness of God, but you also must also, be careful in the diligent use of the means that God has given you. God has given us ways in which we can persevere as Christians. How do we continue in the fear of the Lord? Well, we continue in the fear of the Lord by employing ourselves in the means that God ordinarily uses to sustain your faith. God keeps his people. He preserves his people. He knows his people loves his people, and he keeps you in the faith by nourishing your faith. He blesses you, but he uses various means to do so. You are using one of those means this morning, and that is the regular attendance of the Lord's house on the Lord's day, to worship God, to hear the preaching of God's word, to take of these sacraments here. These are the means that God uses to strengthen your love for Christ, build up your faith, to help you mature, to help you grow, boys and girls. Just like eating regular food at the dinner table and eating those vegetables like mom asked you to eat, that'll help strengthen your body. What we're doing here in church each Lord's Day is strengthening your soul for the Lord. God uses this to feed you, to bless you, to strengthen you. He wants you 
to glorify him. He wants you to grow in likeness to Jesus Christ. He wants you to mature. He doesn't want you to remain a baby and to drink milk all your life. But he wants you to eat solid food. And so church attendance is important. Hebrews warns us not to forsake the house of the Lord. Uh, one of the surest ways to leaving the Lord is to leaving the Lord's house, leaving the public worship of God. So prayer also, public prayer and private prayer, is a means that God employs to keep you close, to keep you growing. And so we ought to give ourselves to secret prayer, family prayer, church prayer. And then scripture, the reading and the preaching of God's word and the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper are all means that God uses. Now what I want to do here for the, the rest of our time is to use this time to ask ourselves questions um, and to take, if you will, um, an account of how is my soul doing what has the Lord told us today to do? He has told us that we must persevere. He has told us we must fear. And so let's begin there with this question. Are you fearing the Lord? Are you fearing the Lord with faith? Is your fear of the Lord a fear rooted in love for God? Is your fear of the Lord rooted in a faith in Christ and trust in the Lord? Or do you fear God only as one who can punish with hell? Is your view of God simply some kind of uh, cosmic insurance policy? Or do you fear the Lord because you want to keep his commandments? You want to do what's right. You want to love him. You want to serve him. You want to know him. You want to be known by him. That's the fear of the Lord that you want to cultivate. Um, you want to fear the Lord. You want to fear uh, that his, his frown. You don't want his frown. You want his fatherly pleasure. How can I have the fatherly pleasure of God? It's through faith in his son. He has told us, this is my son. Listen to him. And so the first place you have to begin, if you want to have the right kind of fear of the Lord is to look to the Son. Look to Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord. Believe on Him. You believe on Him, you believe on the Father. To believe on Christ and to believe what Christ says is to believe what the Father says. To believe on the work of Christ, the cross of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, that is the fear of the Lord. Because that is God's only way of salvation. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no salvation but through Jesus Christ. And so we urge all men everywhere to believe on the Lord. That's what it means to fear the Lord, to believe on Him and trust in Him with all your heart. Well, let me ask you, do you ever think about eternity? Do you ever think about eternity? Are you, are you going to fall short of entering the rest of God due to an unbelief that you were so preoccupied with this life and this world 
and the things of this world and the concerns of this world and the responsibilities of this world that you never thought deeply enough about, about what happens after this. What happens after I die? What happens to my eternal soul that can never die? What is, what is to become of me? Am I to cease existence? No, the Bible says that you have a soul that will never die and therefore uh, you will be held accountable for what you have done in the body in this life. And are you going to fall short of entering into the rest of God due to an unbelief you didn't think ahead far enough? You know, many of you, you plan well. Um, you, you plan well for your career. You plan well for your family. You plan well for what may happen for your family after you go. And, and that's good. But we also must plan for eternity. The Bible says that it is appointed unto us all to die. And it's not the habit of many Americans today to think about their own death. And they say, oh, that's morbid. You shouldn't think about your death. Yes, you should. That's being realistic. All of us have a day coming. It's already on God's calendar. You have a death date just as surely as you have a birth date, boys and girls. You were born into this world to die. Now, we are under a judgment from God because of sin. And we live with that reality. Every day we are getting closer to that date set on God's calendar. Have you thought about that? Young people, I know it's common for you to think, well, I, I'm going to live forever. Somehow I'm going to escape the reality of what affects everybody else. Friends, don't make that mistake. Sometimes God calls young people to their death sooner than the aged. Don't assume that it's just the aged here who may be standing in the presence of God very soon in a week or two. It may be a young person here. How many times have you seen a car cross the yellow line now that cell phones have been invented? How many times do you see cars crossing into other lanes regularly. All it takes is a careless driver and suddenly you're coming face to face with the living God because the paramedics can't do anything about it. The doctors, the nurses can't do anything about it. Your day has come. The Lord has decreed it and no amount of human intervention is going to stop that day. And so don't think, well, I'm young. I have all kinds of time. We don't know what a day may bring. God may bring, God forbid, but God may bring a great war in this world, a great war that this nation is plunged into, a third world war. And, and our strongest and our youngest of men physically will be called into combat. It'll be all hands on deck. And many lives will be ushered into eternity in a very short space of time, in a few years some historians, Christian historians, have speculated that it was one of the reasons God brought such a great awakening in the late 1850s and, and 60s. It was because God knew he was going to bring the Civil War about. And there would be hundreds of thousands of young men perishing in a space of four years. Hundreds of thousands of souls being brought into eternity. And in God's mercy, he 
allowed there to be this great awakening. And some of you may have read the book Christ in the Camp or read about the great revival in New York City in 1859 that came about. You can't say, well, I'm, I'm in my 20s. I'm, in, I'm a teenager. I've got all kinds of time to think about these things. Or I'm still only mid, middle-aged and technology has improved and medical care has improved. I know I've got 30, 40 more years. No man knows what a day may bring. You need to be ready and don't fall short. You think of the foolish virgins, the foolish virgins waiting on the Lord. They didn't know when the Lord would come. They didn't know what the day of the Lord, what time he would show up. And, and some of them had not prepared sufficiently. They weren't ready to persevere. And when the Lord delayed, what happened? The oil was going out. And they, they, their, their lamps were going out. And they said, give us some of that oil that you guys have. You, you wise virgins who have prepared so much oil for yourselves. And they said, no, we can't give you our oil and expect our lamps and your lamps to continue. Why don't you go and get more oil? And so they went. And what happened? The Lord came and they weren't ready. They weren't prepared. They didn't think ahead. Don't be foolish and say, oh, don't find yourself in hell one day and say, oh, I wish, oh, how I wish I could have another chance to come back into this world and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. How many people in hell wish that right now? They're in a place of great darkness and despair, great isolation, great judgment and wrath of God is upon them. And they would give anything to be in this church meeting today, in this church meeting this morning. They would give anything to be sitting in a pew so that they could give themselves to Jesus Christ. But they didn't. And they, they did not enter into the rest of God. They didn't enter into the rest through faith in Jesus Christ. And there's no hope for them. They still maybe are holding out some kind of hope that on the day of judgment, they'll be able to cross the side of the aisle from Jesus' left side to Jesus' right side. But there's no crossing. No angel will permit anyone to cross. Oh, just let Abraham put his finger in some water and, 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 and let a drop of it come on my tongue. And no. You had your opportunity in this world And you rejected that opportunity. The day of salvation is not forever. History will come to an end. Your life will come to an end. And the lesson of the author of Hebrews here is that you are to study what happened to the children of Israel. They saw the great works of God. They saw the miracles of God. But they were hardened in their hearts when the word came to them. And God pleaded with them. And the Spirit pleaded with them in their, in their inner man, in their soul. And the soul was stiffening its resistance against the, the movements of the Spirit of God. They could taste of the power of the ages to come. And yet they will not come. And they refused the Lord Jesus Christ in their heart. Some tried to make a deal and 
take Christ outwardly, but not have Christ truly and inwardly. And they thought they could play a game and they could have two masters. I'll take Christ in the one hand and I'll take the world in the other. But what happens? Eventually they come to hate Christ. If you're trying to play this game of one foot in the world and one foot with Christ, it won't last. You can't do it. It's like putting one foot on the boat and one foot on the dock and the boat is leaving the dock. You're not going to make it. You need to beware of consuming too much of the world's ideologies, the vain philosophies of this world. What does the Bible say? Watch out. What did Jesus say to his disciples? He said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Watch out for false doctrine. Because this has a deadening effect on souls. You're going to be left in the wilderness. You're not going to inherit the promised land. You're not crossing over the Jordan. You're going to be wishing, oh, that God would have mercy on me and it will be too late. For some of you, it may be immorality. You give yourself to immorality. Like in Numbers chapter 25. And God brought a judgment when they started living immorally with, with the Moabite women. And God brought a judgment on them and they didn't enter into life. See to it that you fear the Lord. Today is the day of salvation. I can't guarantee you another day. 